Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blurt and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to welcome you to a very special event with celebrated artist, influential teacher, Royal Academician and this year's Summer Exhibition Coordinator, Michael Craig Martin who has nurtured generations of students, including several RAs, Michael Landy, Gary Hume, and Lisa Milroy, enjoyed international success with major exhibitions around the world, and transformed the Royal Academy into an explosion of color for this year's summer exhibition. Tonight, we also welcome the RA's Director of Artistic Programs, Tim Marlowe, who joins Michael Craig Martin in conversation to discuss what it takes to coordinate the RA summer exhibition and to consider the development of his career and the evolution of the art world over the last half century. Following tonight's event, I invite you all to join us for a drinks reception in the saloon, where Michael will be signing copies of On Being an Artist, a publication with a selection of his writings published by Artbooks. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Michael Craig Martin and Tim Marlowe. Michael, I'm going to make a unilateral decision that the questions about the summer exhibition I'm going to leave to the audience at the end. Uh, not because I'm not interested, but because you've done a lot of talking about the summer exhibition in the last few days, weeks. Most of us would have to have been on Mars not to have heard you talk about that. And it's brilliant to hear that. But this book, which I commend to all of you, is a revelation in every sense. And, of course, just from Amy's eloquent introduction, you can be framed as a teacher, an RA, the hanger of this year's summer exhibition... But, of course, you are fundamentally, and the umbrella is, um, as well as a very profound and focused vocation, is being an artist. The question I wanted to begin with, because you talk about aspects of how you became an artist, and in a sense it's a path, not a journey, as you say anyway. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. But I wonder whether writing the book in this wonderfully aphoristic way or in series of chapters and so on, whether it in any way made you rethink your backstory or whether or not you've always known cumulatively why you became an artist and what that means or whether thinking about it retrospectively has changed in any way the way you see your past doing the book did make me have to uh, confront a lot of things that made me think about a lot of things that i don't normally think about one of the things that i realized was that i'd had a much more interesting life than i'd realized <laughs> when you kind of put all the bits together and there was, there was this that happened then and this that happened then. And I've done many different kinds of things. I've lived in different places. I've had a very, very interesting life. I've had a very privileged life. And, uh, and that became much more obvious to me when in doing the book. I mean, um, Andrew Brown, who was the, the, the publisher and editor of the book, it was he who kind of pu pulled together all these fragments because... I didn't sit down and write it. I never would have thought to sit down and write a book. It is um, a, a gathering of things I've written over the years. But he very cleverly went through all the things I'd ever written, and he plucked out all the best bits, and he left out all the boring bits, and he left out all the repetition. So that was very helpful. And, when, and then when, when I... Uh, so there were, there were lots of things I'd forgotten that I had written. I, I tended to write things down and then just file them. And so it was very interesting to kind of be forced to go back. I thought I knew quite a lot about your career 
I mean, I know a reasonable amount, but from the book, I realise there's, there's loads I didn't know. I love the idea that you probably didn't know all of that till you thought about it. But, you know, I mean, let's not, uh, let's tease a little. But, you know, we've got an upbringing in, uh, in Dublin, London, uh, America, uh, and then becoming an artist, Yale as undergraduate, postgraduate. We've got uh, Corsham. We've got Goldsmiths as a teacher. We've got that whole London art scene. We've got Cambridge. These are things we may talk about. But that, that you're quite right to say you've had this extraordinary life. There's your encounter with Christine Keeler. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so on. Um, uh, the, 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 um, the question, though, about being an artist... It's clear from the book, at least, that there wasn't one moment. But I love the fact that as a 15-year-old, and, and I love the way you tell it as if most 15-year-olds went to Bogota with their parents um, and then met an artistic mentor, and that inevitably led you to become an artist. Now, you don't do it quite as deadpan as that. But um, that is both not, not, not just privilege, but it is extraordinary. But was that the moment in Bogota as a 15-year-old where it perhaps became more obvious to you that this is what you might want to do? I, I can't now recall. I had the idea of being an artist from the time I was about 12. I, as, soon as, I, as soon as I discovered art, I, and I discovered it first, you know, like one does, I discovered um, it through some old master things which didn't interest me very much, and then I discovered Impressionism, which came as a revelation to me, and then that led to, to uh, post-Impressionism and then to, to modernism. And each thing I found, I found more and more fascinating and intriguing. And it's hard to realize that in, in the 50s in America, at that time, when I was growing up, no one was interested in these things. It was, there were very, it was a tiny, it was hard to find a book on art, on 20th century art. And so it was, it was, I felt that I'd stumbled on this fantastic secret. It was a secret world of, of this amazing world, of amazing people doing amazing things. And from the minute I, knew, I found out about it, the only role that I thought was of any interest at all was to be an artist. I wanted to be part of it, so I needed to be an artist. I think we're all immensely glad that you settled in London. But you could have worked any place, given your background. What, why are you still in London, thank, <laughs> thankfully? Well, it's uh, something that's not, that's not explicitly in the book, but because I grew up in the way that I did and the family changed country and we moved, uh, we moved a lot, um, uh, I realized that when I was, as I was growing up, my idea of where you lived was a choice Shall I live in France? Maybe I could live in England. I could go to, maybe I'll go to South America. That was interesting. I liked Colombia, so my, maybe I'll go and live in Colombia. So it was, it was like, I didn't feel that sense that most people must have that where they have grown up is where they're going to spend their lives. I didn't have that feeling. I was a, it was one of the options. I didn't, and I, when I came to England, I didn't mean to stay. It wasn't my intention to stay forever. I thought I'd come for a year or two. And I came because I had this background of the family, and because I and I was very aware that if it hadn't been for circumstances, I would have grown up in in England. It wouldn't have been Ireland. It would have been England. It would have been London. And so I, I and my family. My father was given home leave, and so every three years we came back to visit my family, which is all in Ireland. But we always came to London as well, and my parents, who had lived in London before and during the war, loved London, and they thought of 
they thought of London in a way as home. And so I grew up with a fascination about the other life I was meant to have and didn't have. And so maybe it's fate, you know, maybe that's why I'm here. I, I have to say, after the first two years in England, after the first year or two, I was still too poor to go home. <laughs> I mean, America was that poor, it's still home. I thought of it as home. And I couldn't leave because I, you know, I had more money when I was a student in America than I did in the teaching first year. Teaching. I did the first year's teaching. I had never experienced, because I had been to England many times, but of course I'd always been either with my parents or I'd been, I'd had dollars. And the difference between having a dollar and having a pound in those days was incredible. And so suddenly I was earning an English salary, living like an English person. And that was quite a surprise. It feels like a sort of subconscious form of manifest destiny. I, 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 I like that. Um, you make the point very with great self-awareness, which I think is one of your characteristics, one of your many characteristics, that had you stayed in America or returned to America, your art would have been different, but you don't know how. Um, so let's reframe that and then just interrogate briefly what you think... Well, on one level, what is British about your art? I think it's very detached in a way, but it, there's aspects of it that one could say is British. But what you think has directly been... In, in, how has Britain directly impacted on the work that you produced? I mean, that's a big question, but let, let's have a go. OK, it's a very difficult question to answer, and I don't think it's necessarily so direct. But I think the way I grew up in America, and the obvious thing for me to do as... Uh, some of my closest friends did was to go to New York, and gradually people became successful. There, there was a there was a uh, there was a there was a way of in America the, at the, even in the 60s there was an idea that you went to art school if you were really interested if that's really what you wanted to do. New York was the obvious place to go, and you could go there, and there were galleries, there were people interested. There was a there was a possibility of a life as an artist. When I came to England, one of the things that struck me. I was floored by what a good art school Corsham was when I first arrived teaching in 96. I couldn't believe what a, it was a great art school. It would be a great art school. If it was just like that today, it would be considered a fantastic art school. Um, uh, but the people graduated and there was nothing. I couldn't believe the country educated people to this extraordinary level of expertise and experience. And there were no galleries, there were no collectors, there was, no no, there was nothing really, for most of the students. And it, I could, uh, that seemed very surprising. So if, if I had stayed in America, there was a, there was a career pattern. That, now, because, because I was here, I lived exactly like all of my British friends who were I taught in art school, and they were my friends, and I lived exactly like everybody else. Um, it taught me something about not taking anything for granted, not, you know, that it, it, was a it was tough going. And I don't think at certain times in life it's a bad thing to have some kind of things that are unexpectedly difficult. There's a great story, I don't want to keep quoting your own great stories at you, but there is a great story you tell about Guston, Philip Guston coming to Yale. I want to talk to you about Yale in a minute, and Albers in particular. But this kind of polarized 
situation in an art school where the Al Hell Jack Torkoff school of sort of second generation abstract expressionists were feeling very threatened by pop art and one or two of your fellow students clearly were acolytes of, of them and so asked the visiting Guston how you held this, the insidious threat of pop art at bay and Guston's answer I thought was really interesting which you can tell but I want to know was that reflected in the way that British art schools were too? Well, Gus, Guston's answer was really wonderful because it was a kind, there was this kind of per person shaking with emotion about how pop art was going to bring down civilization. And, um, uh, and Guston it has. Said, and, Gus, and Guston said, uh, just relax, uh, don't worry about art. Art looks after herself, and he said herself. And uh, he said the most dangerous people in the art world are those who tell you that their aim is to protect art. They're going to defend art against something. And I think that's fantastic advice. In my life, that's been true, that some of the people who are most <laughs> dangerous to art are the ones who claim they're going to save it from whatever it is that they're saving it from. And was the British art school system in the 60s, and, and then in, in the 70s, and then we'll go to Goldsmiths in a minute, did it have that kind of tension? Were there people who fit? I mean, St. Martin's always struck me, um, uh, I mean, studied it, not been, been there, that the Caro generation, the fa that, you know, that they'd killed the father figure that was Henry Moore, Caro was this pivotal figure, and the Barry Flanagan, then the Bruce McLean, Gilbert and George, Richard Long generation, who were your contemporaries and became your friends, they'd effectively killed the father figure with Caro, but there was no animosity, and the Caro generation, certainly Anthony Caro himself, never felt threatened by that. He felt that it was, it was facilitated, but was that your reading of the British art school system in the, in the late 60s, early 70s? I, I found an, uh, something very extraordinary when, when I came because, uh, uh, of course, I arrived in the middle of the swinging uh, 60s. You know, London was the supposed to be the centre of, sw of the swinging world, swinging London and all that. And what, uh, uh, what I discovered really was that in general, uh, the British were very, as a, in general, were very nervous about the modern world. They didn't really, they weren't comfortable in the modern world. They weren't... Uh, uh, they were, they'd been uneasy for the whole of the century about modernism. Well, furniture and architecture. Every, every, everything was, was, was really, there was a resistance to, virtue, to, to the modern world, whereas America just took it all for granted, isn't it? It didn't embrace, just took it for granted that the modern world was theirs and that was what they were going to do. And it was natural, it was obvious. Whereas in England, there was a real resistance. But what was really extraordinary was in art schools, the students took, that world that the general populace denied, they took it more for granted than American students. They were amazingly comfortable with the idea of, the, of contemporary art, of contemporary ideas. It, I was very struck by how at ease people were here about being, the creative people were very at ease about being creative. America, as we all realize more now than then, is a deeply conservative country. It's, it's fundamentally a very conservative place, whereas England, in a funny way, isn't, although it has great strands of conservatism running through it. There is another part, aspect to England which is um, really very radical and is willing to you know, occasionally throw the baby out with the bathwater, frankly. But, 
And sceptical too. There is a British scepticism, which you begin by saying that's your natural condition too. Yes, I, the, the, the British are wonderfully sceptical. And I, I have to admit, uh, you know, in, in my time in England, I did go back to America for one year. And I, after six months, I just couldn't wait to come back to England because I was dying for somebody to be sceptical about something. <laughs> <laughs> Anything. <laughs> um, Let's talk more, think more broadly about teaching um, and your own experience as a student and then how that may have informed and move on to your, your work as a teacher. Albers is a fascinating character uh, and certainly there are many aspects of, of him and his teaching methods at Yale that I had no idea about that, that, I, that I gleaned from the book. Not least the fact that the, course, the courses on colour that he ran, that when I had a conversation with Robert Rauschenberg Admittedly, that was in the Black Mountain days. You got the feeling that, that he was a kind of dictator who told artists, this is how it must be. It turns out, certainly from your evidence, that he was the very opposite of that. But he also taught mainly people who weren't artists. Well, Yale, uh, Yale ran the art school uh, in very much like the rest of the university. It was a university with university departments. And so the courses, there were some courses that were only available to people who were specialists in that subject. They, uh, an, uh, a student, a normal, uh, a regular student couldn't do a painting class without previously doing other classes. But you could do the color course, for instance, or you could do the drawing course without, just by being, an, just as an undergraduate. You could just take it like you would might take English literature or history of, you know, 19th century history. And so a lot, many, many of the students, probably 60, 70% of the students taking the, some of the art courses were actually people who had no intention of being artists, had never, it would never even occur to them to be artists. They were taking it out of interest. And so, I mean, I, and I have always uh, uh, felt that, you know, all these people at Yale went on to be lawyers and stockbrokers and made fortunes in New York City and uh, I'm, and I assume that they all became collectors and that's why the, there's this big collector base in America because they all went to Yale and took the color course. We should do this at the Royal Academy. <laughs> Education for those who then become patrons or collectors, it's a brilliant But it model. did give people a different, it, obviously doing something practical like that gave people an entirely different perception about the nature of uh, of art and the nature of visual experience mm. than doing art history. And so I, I know it had a big impact on those people. And I have to say that uh, some of them were much better than the art students. <laughs> yeah, but let's not push that too much because... Um, so obviously Albers was from the Bauhaus originally in Black Mountain and then you know, he was in his mature period when you encountered him as a, as a young graduate and then postgraduate student. You come to, to, uh, to Britain, you come near Bath to Corsham. There's a fellowship at Cambridge, but, you know, you're making your way successfully as an artist. But then you teach at Goldsmiths, and, you know, and this is, in a sense, the next phase of, of your career and, and, and one of the parts of the spheres of influence that you're, I think, quite rightly deemed to have, have, have exerted on British culture, you know, t to the good. Um, Clearly, you didn't take the Albers-based Yale tripos to, to um, Goldsmiths. It wouldn't have worked. Um, did you have a, an ethos at Goldsmiths that you started by trying to impose, or was your teaching at Goldsmiths something that emerged out of your experience in the 80s predominantly with the students you had and the system you, you inherited? Um, 
there's something very um, uh, basic about the way I'm, uh, the way I approach things. Um, I'm uh, I'm very pragmatic, and I look at the situation as to what is realistically possible here. That's what I did with the with the exhibition here. I didn't change anything important about the summer exhibition. Apart from I, the stairs, the courtyard, the architecture. Yeah, no, but, room but that's just but that's just tinkering. That's plain. That's plain. <laughs> that's plain at the edges. I didn't I didn't change the nature of it because you can't. So I don't waste time thinking it's terrible and we should make it into something another kind of exhibition. I tried I tinkered with what was there. So when I arrived in England I did try to teach something on the basis of the Albers course. I did it at Corsham. It was a terrible failure. It just didn't work. Whatever it was that worked in them, it just couldn't work with the British personality. It just was, it simply was impossible. So I gave it up. And I then started to, but I got interested in teaching from, because I was doing so much of it, it interested me to make it interesting for myself. And then what happened was when I, I, I met John Thompson um, uh, before he went to um, to Goldsmiths, and he went in the early 70s and took over as the dean or the head of the department, and he utterly transformed the school. And then, to uh, my great pleasure, he invited me to go and teach there. And uh, he had already turned the whole of art education at the school upside down because he had already gotten rid of all the departments. So there's only one department, just fine art. Students arrive and they can do whatever they want. They can do painting or sculpture, film, video, photography, anything. And they can spend the first year doing painting and then think this is a big mistake and then spend the second year and third year doing sculpture. No problems about movies. These things which are very problematic in many art schools. You get accepted into a sculpture school and then you decide you want to be a painter. This is, can be very problematic. He just got rid of this problem. He also, so that meant he got rid of all the hierarchies in the school too because there's no head of painting, no head of sculpture. He got rid of the year, so there's no first year, head of first year, head of second year, head of, all those, all those posts went. So it was already a very radically different school. It absolutely clicked for me about I believed exactly the same thing. It was just perfect to me. And then, and you were hired just to be you. You were just hired as an artist to come in and be you. There were no, you didn't have any, you weren't told, I mean, to, to be honest, the first year that I, was, that I was there, about halfway through the year, I noticed that people kind of waited for me to say things in meetings and things like that. And, and then I realized I was in charge of something because <laughs> nobody, nobody had ever told me. It was that vague. I didn't know that I was supposed to take responsibility for something. I was supposed to, you know. So, uh, but, but, it, but it was a different idea about how you approach the students. And, and, and because we were treated with such unbelievable respect as artists, that's how you were treated by the school we treated the students exactly the same way because we just, that's what happens. If, if, the, if people are treated badly at any level of an institution, everybody knows this in an institution, everybody passes it down, right? If, you go, if somebody's miserable at some level, everybody below them is going to be miserable because they'll pass it on yeah. down the thing. If, everybody, if people are happy and satisfied with the institution, it thrives. And that's what, that's what happened at Goldsmiths. So obviously there are, you know, there are broad and complex cultural reasons why 
the, the, the generation of artists who emerged from Goldsmiths at the end of the 80s, early 90s, were as they were. But it is interesting hearing it from this perspective, that apart from the respect and the, the belief in, in artists as teachers, but the, 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 the getting rid of the hierarchy and breaking down non-departments, non do you think that had um, an influence on the way that that generation, I mean, I'm thinking of Damien and, and, the, and the YBA generation, um, which was at other art schools too, but mainly Goldsmiths was the kind of core. Do you think they became so professionalised and successful and disciplined in their own ways because you, in a sense, gave them latitude so they found their own discipline? Or was, were there more, was there more structure than I'm, I'm gleaning? Uh, the essential thing about Goldsmiths was we did something that, you know, in retrospect was quite terrifying. Um, uh, students would arrive on the first day. They had been, they'd been interviewed. We interviewed every single applicant for half an hour. And, because I, and I interviewed thousands of people because I thought it was the most important thing. If we got the wrong people in, we, we, you can't undo that. Um, and so, but they would arrive on the first day and they'd be given a tutor and a space to work. And then they were just told, well, do something. There are no classes in anything, just do something. And we can't talk to you because you don't have anything. You, you have to do something, and then we, then we will come and talk to you. So, the, and many of the students coming there, certainly over the years, knew that that was what was going to happen, but of course it's absolutely terrifying when it's actually presented to you. You can imagine how terrifying that is when you're 19 years old. To, and what we were trying to do was to say the most important thing to in being an artist is to take absolute responsibility for what you're doing and learn to take responsibility. We're trying to teach you to take responsibility from the word go. We're not going to make it easier. We're not, taking, we're not going to give you a project that takes away responsibility. We're not giving you uh, classes in which there's certain kind of determining factors and how you, well you do. We take you all of that away. You have to decide what you want to do and you have to, you, it has to matter to you. you, you and because how should it matter to us if it doesn't matter to you? So that's what, that's what those people learned at Goldsmiths was, and you, you know, I mean, this, uh, they weren't taught anything about careers and things like that. No, no, they became, Nobody, they, they became but, very but they successful. Were, but they were very, very good at knowing how to look after themselves, how to think for themselves, how to change profoundly. You know, Sarah Lucas, who was one of the most interesting people who, who went to Goldsmiths, she didn't do work anything like she does today when she was a student at Goldsmiths. She was welding, wasn't she? she, she yes, yeah, she, did, she did abstract, formalist sculpture. You know, it was completely different. But the thing is, the way that they were educated meant that they were able to make changes. To, they were able to... In, because, because all of their confidence was within themselves, in their sense of themselves as the center of what they did. And for an artist, that is the key thing. You need absolute commitment, you need determination, you need independent thinking, you need ability to change. There are certain things. And the course of Goldsmiths was not open just like it's, a, like it's kind of, uh, or very free in the sense that that's a, that's a kind of wonderful ideal. It was very much focused with the idea how can we help people to survive in the art world? It never occurred to me that people would become massively successful. I wanted to see people have the possibility of having what I had, of being an artist in the world in the way that I was an artist in the world. I wasn't the most successful artist in the world, but I had a place in the art world. I had a career as an artist. 
I was, uh, I felt lucky that this was the life they had, and I assumed that's what they wanted. It is interesting how, I mean, I certainly didn't mean to, to even imply that Goldsmith taught them how to be professional artists, but the, the view subsequently after their success amongst art school was that that group of students, you know, Damien, second year, put Freeze on, they got a professional catalogue produced and all the rest of it. They were being trained to be professional artists, successful artists. That's what other art schools wanted to do. But you're saying it came from a, a, a discipline that, that was there because they knew how to change. They knew they, You taught them survival, but you gave them the freedom to create and you made them make things in order for them to get your attention and in a sense, that was what made them artists. Well, see, we, we, also, we also, because of the way they were taught, they were also given a sense that there is an art world out there and when you leave here you want to be, if you want to be an artist, you want to be part of that. Well, in a sense, you, you kind of are already. You are already engaged in this. Many, many art schools, student, you, you, I mean, I'm sure there are people who've been to art school who know this, that uh, a person can be, in, in many art schools, can be very successful in the art school and never do as well again in their career as they did as a student. The, the school nurtured them in some kind of way and uh, looked after them in a certain way, and when that was removed, they floundered. This didn't happen with people from, from Goldsmiths because we didn't, when, we, when they left, we didn't take away anything. They were, they were already so independent-minded. Now, with somebody like Damien, Damien had kind of, kind of entrepreneurial interests. He was interested in, in organizing things. And no other student did that, but Damien was free to do that because the school said, do what you're good at. Do what interests you. Make it work. Go into the world like a, like a real person. And that's the, re the reason why the exhibition Freeze was so successful was because nobody could believe that students who were all undergraduates had put on an exhibition that looked exactly like something you'd go to a museum and see. Everything about it. The work was, was exceptionally good, almost without, almost without exception. It was interesting work. And then the whole way it was presented, and the catalog, all those things that are the accoutrements, they were also very cleverly, it's very famous about Damien getting people there and things like that. But, the, but there's, they, they looked at the models of the world and said, well, why can't we do that? And they didn't see a reason not to. And I, I think it's also very important to say that in the 80s, for that generation, it absolutely coincides with the great years of the Saatchi collection. And they went, I, took my I did take my students to Boundary Road for the first exhibition of the, which was the great minimalist shows. That, well, you know, suddenly it became possible in London to see the greatest contemporary art in the world that was done a year, two years ago, see it shown, the best examples shown perfectly in London. And students could go every month or two and see a new exhibition of work of this caliber. This gave these kids a sense of what is the highest level of achievement possible in the world that we're trying to enter. Yeah, and the spaces that were possible. Damien's always talked about those spaces as amongst the best he ever showed in, and there weren't they, spaces they, like that in London apart from that. No, and the, fa the fact is there's no spaces as good today. How about teaching in your own work? You know, a lot of artists uh, that, that I've encountered, I mean, they, they enjoy teaching, but they find it very draining, and it is a way of earning a living, and if they could give it up and be able to earn a living as an artist, they would do so. 
I only get the impression, it's not stated explicitly, but that, that teaching is, in a sense, quite closely bound up with your practice and the way you think of yourself as an artist. Is that true? Well, I never thought of myself as having anything in, to do with teaching until I needed to make a living. And that was why I went to teach at Corsham. That was why I taught in those years. Um, I actually uh, left Goldsmiths in uh, 1988, which was the year of freeze. That summer of freeze, I quit. And the reason was it was the first time in my life I had been able to think I could survive on my work. The minute I could leave, I did. That was, it was very, very simple. I was, I, I mean, again, in my pragmatism, I think, for God's sake, if you're going to spend years doing something, you have to make it enjoyable for yourself. It has to be interesting. You have to try and make something. I didn't want to be, I mean, I knew all those years of teaching, of course, you meet people who hate teaching and are miserable and make their students miserable as a follow-on from their own misery. Um, I never, I thought, this is just ridiculous. I've got to make myself happy doing this. So while I was doing it, I mean, you, you know, you sit, you know, the thing, you know, it's like the, it's like the, this show here, you know, for several weeks, I throw myself at it 100%. Once it's over, I can't, I don't even want to think about it. I, it's of no interest to me. Got, you know, it's dark. We'll make you think about it in a minute. Um, <laughs> but I want to just uh, um, talk a bit about the, the evolution of your own work. Um, this has been done many times. This is a, an oak tree, a very small oak tree, has to be said. Um, I mean, that is a, it's a, it's a major piece, and it's still a piece that some people don't get. And the idea that put, you put a glass of water on a, a, a glass shelf and it's an oak tree, and you have this self-interrogative dialogue, I suppose, about you know, the relationship between the names we give to things and what objects are and the transformatory power of, of, of art and the object post Duchamp, et cetera, et cetera. But what I want to throw at you, because I think that's a familiar territory and this, is a, a, this represents a major uh, a piece or illustrates part of a major piece. But um, you were brought up a Catholic. Um, consubstantiation as a doctrine Transub would... I mean, sorry, I'm a Protestant. Yeah, yes, of course, yes, I give it away by saying... Transubstantiation, as is, of course, the compromise. <laughs> but as a doctrine, would say that the, 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 wine and, the bread and wine is yeah. literally transformed into the body and blood. You never mentioned transubstantiation, but were you playing with it? Oh, I mean, I would not... I'm quite sure I would never have thought of the, what I do in the oak tree if I hadn't been brought up a Catholic and was familiar with the idea of transubstantiation. Um, but, uh, but I think it's also, you know, my own uh, interests are to do with very, very basic things about understanding the world, understanding what, it's, what, we, what we're doing here, what, is, what, what's, what, what are things, what is experience, how do we, how do we assimilate experience, what, what is it that we understand from what we see and what we do, how do we make something of this, why do we do the things that we do. But at, and I, I, I've always been interested at the most basic level, and which is what the oak tree was meant to address. I also, in, you know, in retrospect, again, during the book, I realized I had a very, very classical education. You know, uh, we, we, we did things at school like rhetoric, you know, and uh, you know not just Latin, but logic and rhetoric, 
And so there's a, there's a part of me that has, th these are very classical ideas about substance uh, and, uh, you know, uh, appear, the, the relation of appearance and substance and all these questions. These are fundamental questions of uh, philosophy and it seemed to me that they are, that they're in, in art, they're rooted in the, in the very basic premise of art, uh, which, which I see as a kind of poetics of, of, of the world, of understanding, of trying to understand the world. And uh, the people who find the oak tree, uh, the only reason why anybody could possibly find the oak tree difficult to deal with is because they, they take it literally. It's a poem. It's meant to, I'd never it's do meant that. To, it's meant to be a, po it's a poetic truth. And poetic, there was a time in the world when people believed the poetic truths were more important than literal truths. Yeah. And unfortunately, in our world, we've given up that idea. Now we only think, unless you can prove it to me, uh, that, uh, um, and it, it doesn't, and they're, they're not exactly the same kind of truths. And poetic truths are a way of looking at the, at the world of practical truths. I'd never be literal, but you've not drunk your oak tree at all, whereas I've kind of guzzled mine down. Um, I'm, that, I'm, I'm more cautious about it. <laughs> I think that's very clearly and beautifully put about poetic truth and, and, and literal truth. And I think that it also then helps explain the ways in which your work has subsequently gone, because you, know, you are described, there's a brilliant section of lists of things you've been described as, but, you know, a rigorous conceptual artist. I mean, I think if someone asked me in a nutshell what you were, I tried to do it the other day, I said it's an Irish-born, Anglo-American conceptual artist who's now moved into all manner of different terrains. Obviously, the list in the book is more eloquent than that. But conceptual art is where you're seen to have emerged from and to be seen as, a, you know, a, a major figure within that movement. And, and you don't diss that in the book, but you, 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 you in some ways suggest a certain surprise that you've been categorised quite as firmly there, even though a lot of your friends and contemporaries were of, of that ilk. So, so even at the time, did you see yourself as part of something called conceptual art, or was your vision always more expansive? I, um, because, because I had my um, early cultural life and my education in America, and I was in uh, uh, near, you know, Yale was very close to New York and we went there all the time uh, during the early 60s. I saw m most of the really early pop shows. I saw the, the show that Bridget Riley was in, the op art show at the Modern. I saw the early Warhol shows with the, the, for the first time, the ones with the pillows floating and the flowers. And I saw early, all those early shows of Jasper Johns and um, Rauschenberg. That's, we went to New York every month to see those things. And from that, we, the, the, there was a big sculpture. Then in the mid-60s, there was this big sculpture show at the Jewish Museum. Primary um, structures? Primary structures. And that was the first time I ever encountered minimal art. And there were all the, all the important minimalists were in it. Solowit, Judd. Um, Andre Fleming. Andre, yeah. And, Suddenly, they suddenly everything else looked old-fashioned. Everything just looked old-fashioned, and it kind of, it kind of blew apart the kind of, the world of sculpture in, for, in New York or for me at that time. And uh, and then as over it's it always so it always seemed to me that the the way in which art was unfolding was pop art, 
and then minimalist art, and then minimalist art led to conceptual art. Conceptual art, to me, arose out of, as, as the kind of next historical thing. So naturally, as I was the next historical, I knew I wasn't a minimalist, because I was too late, and I wasn't, certainly wasn't a pop artist, because I was much too late, so I'm the next, I'm in this next thing, and that's conceptual art. But, and in the early days, one didn't know what that meant. The, term, the terms that people use to describe movements like that emerge. They become clearer, they become more fixed. And in, the, in those early days, it wasn't absolutely clear exactly what was and wasn't conceptual. I, I think of myself as, I'm not a conceptualist. Like Are you post-conceptualist? No. But I, but I think, I'm thinking, to be honest, I think I'm a kind of maverick, in this, you know. And, uh, but I, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Lawrence Wiener, and I'm not, I'm certainly not art and language, and I'm not, so I'm not hardcore any of those things. And there were things that I, that I liked about it and things I didn't like about it. So, and, uh, and when I started to make, in the late 70s, to start to make drawings of things, I knew I was breaking every rule. This, conceptual artists were not meant to do this. And I knew that. And, um, but I, what, what intrigued me was the idea of taking my conceptualist uh, sensibility way of approaching things and addressing the most, the oldest questions, representation, mm. what is it to make a picture of something. So, so I was trying to address this, this traditional thing, but from an entirely different point of view than the people who do those things normally. I suppose one, I mean, reductive way, which is what we art historians always do, you know, is the sense that you've, you, you sort of take art apart, I mean, deconstruct it and then reassemble it. So you virtually dematerialized, and then you start with uh, line, drawing and representation on the wall, but then there's the critical issue of color. And of course, as one of Alba's students and someone who grew up looking at pop art, among other things, it now seems obvious that color would return to your art, but it was quite a trauma for oh, you, wasn't it? Absolutely, it never even, and it, 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 it didn't occur to me. I mean, I was quite frightened, Carl, you know, that idea, you know, who's afraid of, you know, red, white, red, red, blue. red, yellow, and blue. It's, it's absolutely true. I was very nervous about it. And of course, conceptual art in its hardcore conceptual art is very puritanical. And you can't possibly have any color. And, you know, there's black and white. Somebody told me that when I, as soon as I introduced red into my work, I'd kind of gone over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> so the walls here at the academy are a suicide pact, are they? This is a suicide note, <laughs> yes. It took me a long time to find a way to be able to address it. I just didn't know. I don't like doing things, it's obvious, I suppose, I don't like doing things that are just arbitrary. I don't like, I can't do something if, it's, if it's, it seems to me meaninglessly arbitrary. And what I discovered about color was it suddenly dawned, it took me a long time, I'd say, like I suddenly thought of this one night, but I didn't, it took a long time to realize it was that I could make anything red or green or yellow and it made absolutely no difference. And it was, it, this wasn't the same as it being arbitrary. It was that I, these were choices. I could just decide 
these things. And I didn't, I wasn't tied to what the color was of the, of the actual thing. I, it was not necessary. And then, I also, then of course, then everything I learned from the Albers color course flooded back to me incredibly usefully. And um, so everything I do with color, I know it's all based on, it, I use what I learned. So, on some of the, the paintings, you'll perhaps start with one colour in what, what you say is an arbitrary but not meaningless way, but then that, by definition, will inform subsequent colours, because then you're going to play with how colours work and Absolutely. so on. Absolutely. And if you, if you look at a series of my work, you will always see that there's one dominant colour. I choose the dominant colour usually first. Once you've, got, once you've made that decision, you're already, every other color is having to deal with this thing. And every time you add a color, the situation has changed. Now you've got to deal with something else. And then there's another third color, you've now you've got to deal with something else. So, so and that's the, way, that's the way. And so I'm trying, Albers talked about um, creating color worlds. And I see when I'm doing a painting with, with five objects in it, each one of them, to me, I make it a color world so it stays separate. And then interacts. And then, and then, and then it interacts because I also learned from Albers that you can use the same color in different places in the same picture. And if you do it cleverly, it doesn't look like the same color. I don't know if I told you this, but one of the, I can't say who, but and you won't necessarily be a household name, but one of the distinguished elderly members, um, when they realized that you were putting this extraordinary pink on the walls, um, said to me, he said, I'm actually horrified at the thought of my art going on, on that color. And then had the grace to say a week or so later, I'm even more horrified to say it looks marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> but, but pink is still a problematic color for some people. Or, or, I mean, I, I'm, forget that instance, but it's a very charged color. It's you might very, argue all colors are, but. No, no, but there's no doubt. It's such an interesting color. Um, uh, you know, it was, it was, I didn't realize this until quite recently, it was only invented in the 19th century, about 1850, it got invented. I mean, imagine a color got invented. And, uh, and th um, uh, th that's when magenta was created, it was named after the Battle of Magenta. And um, the thing is, we associate it, you know, shocking pink, we associate it with, with a, certain, uh, uh, a certain kind of vulgarity with lipstick and with... You know, Looseness, sexuality, yeah, sexual yeah, politics, it's sexy, there's all sorts and it, of things. It's, but, and, and of course I like, I love all these associations, of course. Um, but it also is very, I can't tell you why, but it has an impact on uh, uh, when you put other things with it, on it, it is very, very sympathetic to everything that, nearly, nearly everything, not absolutely everything, but nearly everything uh, is lifted by, the, by uh, this color. It's, it's very unstable color. Um, it, it changes more dramatically in light than any other color I know. If you go into the galleries in the morning, they're completely, that, that gallery is a different color than it is in the afternoon. It can look a kind of bluish, purpley pink, or it can go into a kind of orangey, reddy pink. It can, go, it can look kind of washed out, or it can look really, sometimes the color gets better and better as it gets darker. It gets brighter as it gets darker. It's very strange color. And um, so, uh, but I can't explain it. All I can tell you is, if I had painted that room red, it would have been terrible.
Well, and that has obviously historical associations here, but it's not just that. Red is a colour that's what, stronger, more demanding. Certain things look great on it, certain things look terrible on it. The, the, thing, that's, the thing that's so strange about the, the magenta, the pink, is that it, in a bizarre way, it doesn't draw attention to itself. It draws attention to the other things. Of course you see it, I'm not saying it's, it's invisible, but it acts as a kind of frame, or frame for other things. And uh, if you paint a room uh, red or orange, and you walk into the room, you will only, it will kill everything in the room, and you will only see that color. I'm really interested in that, and in fact, just to finish on, on your sculpture, because in continuing my reductive view, you know, the sculptures then become three-dimensional lines, but they're transparent. I mean, the garden tools, the shoes, the way those works looked at Chatsworth. But pink, again, is interesting in that context. Because, you know, if, you, if I apply your, your um, adage or the, what you've just said to the room there, if you put red on those things, um, they could look like road signs or whatever. We're used to that kind of language. Pink works in an interesting way, but formally those sculptures operate in a kind of territory that I don't think many other sculptures have previously operated in. Something to do with transparency, something to do with framing the landscape, something to do with the fusion of colour and line. But all those are traditional ideas in public sculpture. But I mean, I, I mean the main thing about the, the uh, sculptures is, of course, that um, they are, as sculpture, they are three-dimensional objects, but their illusionism is a two-dimensional illusion, mm. illusionism, not a three-dimensional illusion. They're actually flat. And... Uh, the, and the thing that was the breakthrough for me about with the uh, sculptures was realizing that if uh, that it was possible to make them stand up, and that it was and that, that they needed a very strong support system. But if you buried it in the ground so you couldn't see it, you completely forgot about it. it you don't even look at it and think, "How is this done?" It just doesn't seem like an issue. So the, the sculptures become kind of weightless. If I have umbrellas sitting on the ground, they just look like they're resting on the ground just like a regular umbrella. And their defying of gravity isn't the issue. You don't, because we mentioned this earlier, that a lot of sculptures that do seem to defy gravity, that's what you notice most about them, whereas this, it's a given. It's a given. You don't really, you don't really know. There, in most sculptures, because gravity is such an important thing, if you have a lot of mass you have to have weight at the bottom because that's the way gravity works. If you manage to make a sculpture like uh, Michelangelo's David, which is a kind of miracle of that there's this giant stone thing supported on these two little legs, that's, it is, it is a, a real masterwork of uh, giving the scale of it. And, uh, but, uh, but, it's in, but that's very much a defiance of the... Of the of, uh, of gravity, whereas I think the 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 issue isn't there because because I've hidden the, hidden the things. When I, if I take the same sculptures and I put them on plinths, they just look like sculptures. Yeah, um, I'm still I still lament the fact that the fork which was in the garden, um, the fern garden in the friend's courtyard in the keeper's house has gone. But maybe we can get it to return. But Chatsworth, um, too, our loss too is Chatsworth Games. God. All right, um, other questions that people would like to ask Michael from the floor. Wasn't pink used in Renaissance paintings? 
Well, there is a pink used. From what I understand, it is not the same. It is a pink that it derives from red, and the and magenta does not derive from red in the same in the same way. It's flesh, isn't it, rather than bright in and of itself? I think there, you, there, uh, there are some paintings where I mean, if you t if you take red and you add white to it, it goes pink. It goes into a kind of pink, but it, it doesn't go into a magenta because the, the magenta is. It's when it's magenta that it has this tendency to fluctuate between blue and red. That it's the instability is there, and that's not there if you if you make a pink out of red. Michael, this is a flourishing academy. I mean, there is an art school here, and you've made a sort of almost manifesto declaration outside the um, summer exhibition that you know this is Britain's only free postgraduate art school. Um, do you? What would your advice to young artists or aspiring artists be now in 2015? I think that's the hardest question you could possibly ask. But you do try and answer it in the book, so it's, not, know, it's a I fair question. Well, <laughs> we'll read the book. Um, I mean, in the end, as an artist, um, the only way I understand to be an artist is to be passionately, have a passionate desire to make art, and it overrides absolutely everything else. The other thing is, you know, if you, if you go to law school, you get a law degree. If you go to medical school, you get a medical degree. And when you leave with your degree, you are a lawyer, and you, or you are a doctor, and you can now do it. You can practice. It's legal, and you can do it. If you get a degree from an art school, you can be an artist. You could have been an artist before you went to art school. You could be an artist while you're in art school. You are an artist. You're an artist when you're making art. There isn't some way that it gets legitimized by anything. And this seems to me to be very, a very important aspect of it, that about why it's so important to have both a commitment to it, an engagement with it, a sense of fascination with it that propels you because as I've said in the book, if, if, frankly, if you have another choice, do the other choice. Because there are people who don't think they have a choice. And they will succeed better than you. If you think you've got a choice, you're already a bit ambivalent. If you're that ambivalent, believe me, it's, it's, good. it's, such a, it's a very difficult thing. There's one thing that people never talk about, which I now at my advanced age I am very conscious of, which is it's not you know, incredibly difficult to be quite creative when you're in your 20s, when you're 25 years old. It gets harder in many ways as you get older. It gets easier and harder. You know, you, you gain... Doesn't success make it easier, or is that, does that add to a different kind of... Well, adds that, a different that, kind of adds a, that adds a different... What, what's difficult is, maintain, is, is maintaining creative energy over an entire lifetime. That is one hell of a thing to ask somebody to do. Everybody has their ups and downs. You go through periods where you can work really well. Sometimes I, you know, every time I work well, I think, oh great, now I'm never going to have the, pro I'm never going to have a problem about working again. And then you know, six months later, you're like, mm -hmm. you kind of lose. You, you think when I did the first work where I thought this is the first time I've done a really good work. This is really very good work of art. I thought, that's great, now I never have to do a bad one again, and the next one wasn't as good as the one I'd just done. I couldn't recapture it so easily. But that's, in a way, that's a little bit like a drug, because you need to... If, see, that's, that's one of the other things about Goldsmiths. Goldsmiths gave people 
an experience of something just beyond reach. And that's a very good incentive. You know, it's, it's like heroin, I assume, that you, you, once you've had a hit, you want another hit. You want another one. You want that feeling, again, you want that sense of something special that comes when you've made, when you've made a work that you feel wonderful about. It's a very special feeling. But have you ever seriously considered stopping being an artist? There were a You're a lifer. Yeah, but there were a couple of times when I thought, God, this is a disaster. You know, what have I done? I certainly had feeling, you know, I certainly had periods where I felt that I had hit some form of glass ceiling, uh, and that I and that I was and that and that it disappointed. I had disappointed myself. My main sense was that I had disappointed myself. But then I thought, well, who cares? Just get on with it. Because in the end, that's what you have to do. You just have to... I mean, I'm lucky because I never feel like I've done it yet. There's something I'm waiting to do. And I've always had that feeling. That I, you know, this is okay, but I've got something else to do. we better let you get on with it. Michael, it's always a pleasure. Um, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much for being here tonight. In addition to the summer exhibition being open until 10, uh, we also have this exhibition in this room in the two adjoining rooms by Eileen Cooper. They will be open, so whilst you're having a drink and meeting Michael for a book signing, please do come and wander around these spaces as well. You're very welcome. But we'll just wrap up tonight's event. Please join me in thanking Tim Marlowe and Michael Craig Martin. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.